Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we'll be reading Mark 6, verses 14 to 29, and then through J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on Mark. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Mark, chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, He is Elijah. And others said, He is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. These verses describe the death of one of the most eminent saints of God. They relate the murder of John the Baptist. Of all the evangelists, none tells this sad story so fully as Mark. Let us see what practical lessons the passage contains for our own souls. We see, in the first place, the amazing power of truth over the conscience. Herod fears John the Baptist while he lives and is troubled about him after he dies. A friendless, solitary preacher with no other weapon than God's truth disturbs and terrifies a king. Everybody has a conscience. Here lies the secret of the faithful minister's power. This is the reason why Felix trembled and Agrippa was almost persuaded when Paul the prisoner spoke before him. God had not left himself without witness in the hearts of unconverted people. Fallen and corrupt as man is, there are thoughts within him accusing or excusing according to how he lives, thoughts that will not be shut out, thoughts that can make even kings like Herod restless and afraid. None ought to remember this so much as ministers and teachers. If they preach and teach God's truth, they may rest assured that their work is not in vain. Children may seem inattentive in schools. Hearers may seem careless in congregations. But in both cases, there is far often more going on in the conscience than the eyes see. 
seeds often spring up and bear fruit when the sower, like John the Baptist, is dead or gone. We see in the second place how far people may go in religion and yet miss salvation by yielding to one master sin. King Herod went further than many. He feared John. He knew that he was a righteous and holy man. He observed him. He heard him and did many things in consequence. He even heard him gladly. But there was one thing Herod would not do. He would not cease from adultery. He would not give up Herodias. And so he ruined his soul forevermore. Let us take warning from Herod's case. Let us keep back nothing. Cleave to no favorite vice. Spare nothing that stands between us and salvation. Let us look often within and make sure that there is no darling lust or pet transgression, which, Herodias-like, is murdering our souls. Let us rather cut off the right hand and pluck out the right eye than go into hellfire. Let us not be content with admiring favorite preachers and gladly hearing evangelical sermons. Let us not rest until we can say with David, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Psalm 119, verse 128. We see in the third place how boldly a faithful minister of God ought to rebuke sin. John the Baptist spoke plainly to Herod about the wickedness of his life. He did not excuse himself under the plea that it was imprudent or impolitic, or untimely, or useless to speak out. He did not say smooth things and palliate the king's ungodliness for using soft words to describe his offense. He told his royal hearer the plain truth, regardless of all consequences. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Here is a pattern that all ministers ought to follow. Publicly and privately, from the pulpit and in private visits, they ought to rebuke all open sin and deliver a faithful warning to all who are living in it. It may give offense. It may entail immense unpopularity. With all this, they have nothing to do. Duties are theirs. Results are God's. No doubt it requires great grace and courage to do this. No doubt a reprover like John the Baptist must go to work wisely and lovingly in carrying out his master's commission and rebuking the wicked. But it is a matter in which his character for faithfulness and charity are manifestly at stake. If he believes a man is injuring his soul, he ought surely to tell him so. If he loves him truly and tenderly, he ought not to let him ruin himself unwarned. Great as the present offense may be, in the long run the faithful reprover will generally be respected. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Proverbs 28, 23. We see in the fourth place how bitterly people hate a reprover when they are determined to keep their sins. Herodias, the king's unhappy partner in iniquity, seems to have sunk even deeper in sin than Herod. Hardened and seared in conscience by her wickedness, she hated John the Baptist for his faithful testimony and never rested until she had procured his death. We need not wonder at this. When men and women have chosen their line and resolved to have their own wicked way, they dislike anyone who tries to turn them. They want to be let alone. 
They are irritated by opposition. They are angry when they are told the truth. The prophet Elijah was called a man that troubled Israel. The prophet Micaiah was hated by Ahab because he never prophesied good of him but evil. The prophets and faithful preachers of every age have been treated in like manner. They have been hated by some as well as not believed. Let it never surprise us when we hear of faithful ministers of the gospel being spoken against, hated, and reviled. Let us rather remember that they are ordained to bear witness against sin, the world, and the devil, and if they are faithful, they cannot help giving offense. It is no disgrace to a minister's character to be disliked by the wicked and ungodly. It is no real honor to a minister to be thought well of by everybody. These words of our Lord are not considered enough. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. We see in the fifth place how much sin may sometimes follow from feasting and reveling. Herod keeps his birthday with a splendid banquet. Company, drinking, dancing, fill up the day. In a moment of excitement, he grants a wicked girl's request to have the head of John the Baptist cut off. Next day, in all probability, he repented bitterly of his conduct, but the deed was done. It was too late. This is a faithful picture of what often results from feasting and merrymaking. People do things at such seasons from heated feelings of which they afterwards deeply repent. Happy are they who keep clear of temptations and avoid giving occasion to the devil. Men never know what they may do when they once venture off safe ground. Late hours and crowded rooms and splendid entertainments and mixed company and laughing and dancing may seem harmless to many people. But the Christian should never forget that to take part in these things is to open a wider door to temptation. We see, finally, in these verses, how little reward some of God's best servants receive in this world. An unjust imprisonment and a violent death were the last fruit that John the Baptist reaped in reward for his labor. Like Stephen and James and others of whom the world was not worthy, he was called to seal his testimony with his blood. Histories like these are meant to remind us that the true Christian's best things are yet to come. His rest, his crown, his wages, his reward are all on the other side of the grave. Here in this world, he may walk by faith and not by sight, and if he looks for the praise of man, he will be disappointed. Here in this life, he must sow and labor and fight and endure persecution, and if he expects a great earthly reward, he expects what he will not find. But this life is not all. There is to be a day of retribution. There is a glorious harvest yet to come. Heaven will make amends for all. Eye has not seen and ear has not heard the glorious things that God has laid up for all that love him. The value of real religion is not to be measured by the things seen, but the things unseen. The sufferings of this present time are not worth to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Romans 8.18 and 2 Corinthians 4.17 
That is the end of Ryle's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we have heard today. May the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for His glory. In considering what we have just heard, would you prayerfully ask yourself and others the following questions? First, beloved brother or sister, are there any pet sins we are unwilling to give up when we are made aware of them? As we grow in godliness, can we say that I hate every false way? Second, we are told in 1 Corinthians 5 to judge those who are inside the church, and in Matthew 18 to win them by doing so. Have we ever, or are we willing at least, to reprove a brother and sister in open sin? Do we believe that to rebuke is our calling and the results are up to God? Third, can it be said that everybody speaks well of us? Have we suffered hatred and reviling for speaking the truth in love and calling out sin in someone's life? If not, why? Fourth, if there is a sin we constantly struggle with, could it be because we open ourselves to unnecessary temptations like Herod did? What are they? And lastly, are we disappointed with our life situation? Or have we placed our hope fully on our heavenly home where all amends will be made? If we are looking for the praise of man, that is all we will get. But if we are looking for the praise of God, no eye has seen nor ear heard the glorious things that God has laid up for those who love him. Is that where our hope is?